You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. We do praise you. Say all glory be to you, Father, Son, and Spirit. Thank you that you have made yourself known to us revealed yourself to us in the person of Jesus. And we thank you that all of scripture bears witness to him. So we pray that now as we turn to your word that you would fill me and all of us in our weakness with the power of the spirit, that we would be those today who actually encounter the living, reigning Lord Jesus through the spirit. And that we see him, hear him saying to us that he is with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, church family. It's great to see you. Um, This is our first Sunday in Lent. Some of you were here on Wednesday night celebrating Ash Wednesday with us. You can see that we've even sort of changed the way the sanctuary looks a little bit with the colors of purple. We, you you may not have uh, grown up or been, or even been familiar with before a church that uses the, what's sometimes called the liturgical year or the church calendar. Um, we have a little calendar that we made that we use around here. And here's the reason why we do this. Um, Christians are people who don't just believe different things in their head, uh, but Christians are people who are called to live a different way. In fact, the earliest Christians were called followers of the way. So to be a Christian doesn't mean just to have different ideas. It means you pattern your life differently. You live in the world differently. And so just one simple way we do that as a tool of discipleship is we order our time differently. We arrange our years differently, that instead of ordering our time and our celebrations around things like, you know, Black Friday and Fourth of July and spring break and things like that, we're saying that we're, the main thing that we're going to order our lives around is the person, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Bless you, my child. Um, And so uh, we started the season of Advent in which we are anticipating the birth of Christ. And then in Christmas time, we celebrate the incarnation And then an epiphany that we just came out of, we're celebrating the ministry of Jesus and the way that his miracles and healing and teaching exhibit the kingdom of God. Um, And then this season of Lent, um, it's a season where we focus on the suffering um, and ultimately the crucifixion of Jesus. And that's why the colors are purple, you can see, because historically purple is a color of mourning and repentance. And so we're asking God to renew our hearts and to look hard at the places of sin and brokenness in our lives so that God can once again renew us. And all of this is anticipating Easter in which you'll come in here and everything will be turned into white and we'll celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and then ultimately in Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit. So that's why we do that. We want to order our lives differently around the person and work of Jesus. If you've been with us at all, um, in this season, we're studying the Gospel of John and we're calling this uh, study, Come and See, because that's a phrase that comes up a lot in this book, and it's really an invitation. God is making an invitation to you to come and see this person, Jesus. And in seeing him, uh, the invitation is that you would experience something. You would experience something life-transforming, and that you also would become an invitational person, that you would invite others in as well. So our passage this morning is from John chapter 6. So if you want to open your Bibles or just listen um, to this wonderful little story that you may be familiar with, John chapter 6 verses 16 through 24, actually just 16 through 21. Please listen as we hear God's word. When evening came, Jesus' disciples went down to the lake 
where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But Jesus said to them, it's I, it's me, don't be afraid. And then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. People of God, this is the word of the Lord. The invitation today in this wonderful short but very powerful story is very simple and it's in verse 20, see it there? It's a simple invitation of Jesus don't be afraid. That is a command of God that is given in Scripture over 300 times, but it's more than a command, it's an invitation. That today, through the person of Jesus, God is inviting you out of your fear, out of your worry, out of your anxiety, and he is inviting you into his peace, which is life with him. So really simple today. This is what we're looking at today, that Jesus is the Lord of the sea who calls us out of fear and brings us into peace. So the story is so short and lovely that we can almost take it verse by verse. So I just want to begin with the very beginning in verse 16. And this is what I'm calling our reality, which is the open waters, the open waters. So let's look at this. It says in verse 16 and 17 that the disciples launch out into the darkness on the sea. And it says in verse 17, by now it was dark and Jesus had not yet come to them and strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. Now, if you're reading the Bible, this is just a little Bible reading tip. If you're reading the Bible and you come to something that discusses the topic of water, that addresses water, in the Bible and really in, in the whole ancient literature canon, water is often a symbol of uh, chaos and all that is unpredictable and even destructive in the world. And we see this throughout the Bible. So think of Genesis 1 in the very beginning. God created, and it says that the Spirit hovered over the waters, the, the watery chaos of creation, right? God had to make order out of the chaotic waters. Um, in Genesis 9, God brings destruction to the earth, and he brought it through what? You remember? Through the flood, through the water, right? Um, so many of the Psalms use water as a metaphor for what's scary in life. So Psalm 69 says, the waters are up to my neck and I am in the deep waters where floods overtake me. A powerful metaphor of all that is threatening in the world, right? And this is why in the book of Revelation at the very end of the Bible, it, it says that when God redeems all things and brings the new creation, there will no longer be any sea. Why, God? I love swimming. Does God hate swimming? Does God hate the beach? No. It's a poetic metaphor that just simply means that one day, God will take everything in the world that threatens to harm us, and he will take it away, right? So for a non-seafaring people like the Jews, the sea represents all that's dark and destructive and unpredictable and out of our control in the world. And it makes sense, right? Because on land... Um, you can always see what's coming. Even if a predator is coming to you, 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 you can have time to prepare. There's a, some measure of predictability. You can prepare yourself. 
But in water, oh goodness, you never know. I mean, kids, have you ever been in the water, like in the ocean, and like something just slimy slips by and touches you? Oh, it's, it's, you know, you just never know what's going to be down there, and you never know what might be under there, and you feel out of control, and it's highly unpredictable, and that's what it's like to be in the waters. And so the picture of the disciples rowing in the storm in a, in a, in a storm-tossed sea is a picture of our human situation. This is saying to us, you know, you are not on the land. You're not on a firm ground where everything is absolutely predictable and you're in control. You know, as humans, we're out in the water. We're out in the open sea where everything is unpredictable, where we're not in control, where you don't know what's down there. Visibility is low. Instability is high. And a wave could crash over you at any moment. Every person in this room, I think, can understand this because all of us have lived through a collective experience, an open water experience over the last few years. I just read a really wonderful book called The Cost of Control by Pastor Sharon Miller. And she notes that in the modern world, we've developed more and more control over our lives, right? Through money, through technology, through power. We have heaps of control, way more than any of our ancestors had. And yet what happened in the pandemic is that the illusion of human control, which is really what it is, it's the illusion of human control was shattered. Do you remember, do you guys remember what that felt like? Do you remember those early days when they told us to shut up in our houses and then a highly contagious virus was spreading among us? Do you remember what that was like? Do you remember how that felt? Do you remember seeing people in a panic? Maybe you were in a panic Here's the thing, y'all. Here's the thing. The world actually did not change in March 2020. What changed was our perception of the world. The world was no less dangerous in March 2020 than it was in February. But the pandemic took away our power to predict, our capacity to control, our ability to understand what was happening to us. We were suddenly confronted with the reality that we worked so hard to deny that we are all extremely vulnerable, under threat, and out of control. We're on the open sea. And that's the hard truth of this story. It's exposing us to the truth of our tenuous, that we all live in a really, a pretty tenuous existence. Um, And we're not in control, and we're not immune from trials, and we're not living the stable lives we think. As human beings, and even as Christians, we don't live on the land, we live on the sea. We live in the open waters. And even if you do happen to be one of the very, very privileged minority of people who live in the Western developed world who can actually retain a pretty high measure of control and predictability in your life, even if you are one of those people, which most of us are, there's no escaping the fact that a wave can crash over us at any moment. And some of you have had waves crash over you like that recently. A storm can take health away, good circumstances away, financial security away, a job away, um, people away. And even if you manage to avoid nearly every kind of storm that our broken world can throw, then every one of us in the end has to face the most scary storm of all, which is the storm of death, which is the greatest monument to human vulnerability. The final storm in our lives is our own personal extinction. That is how truly out of control that we all are. How does that feel? So I just want to ask you, 
where are you experiencing the open waters right now? Where do you feel like you're out um, in a place where there's low visibility, high instability, you can't really see where you're going, you're feeling the darkness, um, and you don't even know where Jesus is because, frankly, as it says in the story, he's not yet come and you can't even see him, right? Where are you tasting fear? It turns out that following Jesus is not a way to be free from storms. Um, God allows trouble and pain and sorrow and hardship to come in our lives when we can't see the way forward and life feels highly unpredictable and you're rowing, <laughs> you're rowing, and often it doesn't even feel like you're getting anywhere. And I want you to hear, maybe even as a comfort, that this is actually a normal part of the Christian life because you're human. And it's a normal part of the human life. Thankfully, the Christian life is in all storms. Um, the passage right before this one that we're gonna look at next week um, is a really big picnic of 5,000 people. And it's sunny and the grass is green and Jesus is there making sandwiches, giving you, you know, tuna fish. And he's giving you kind of all that you need. And so sometimes a Christian life is like that. Sometimes a Christian life is a wonderful picnic. But what's interesting is if you look back at the ancient art, which depicts the church, the symbol that the church chose, the ancient church chose was not a picnic, but a boat on the open sea. In fact, we even reflected in the architecture of church buildings. The nave, you know, comes from the Latin for the nave of a ship. This image is much more fitting for the church's experience. So here we are out in the unpredictable sea, not sure where Jesus is, rowing and rowing. It all feels kind of scary and out of control. So the question that I wanna ask you today is what will you do with your fear? What will you do with your fear? Okay, the second part of the story, the Lord of the sea. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. And Jesus said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. So Jesus comes to the disciples walking on the sea. Now, is this just some random amazing miracle? Is Jesus showing off just how truly powerful he is? Or did he just like miss his ride? Uh, and you know, he's like, man, I missed that Uber. Gotta, you know, walk out there, use my supernatural powers. No, Jesus does never does miracles just to show off his power. And he certainly does not use miracles for his own personal convenience. Remember in the book of John, miracles are signs. That's what John calls them, which means they point to something. Miracles of Jesus are never meant to amaze, amaze, they're meant to reveal, communicate something about the person and identity of Jesus. So what does this miracle reveal about the person of Jesus? Well, remember what we said. This is where it's just so wonderful to look at the whole scripture because remember what we said, water symbolizes what? Chaos, disorder, evil in the world. And the only person in the Bible that is said to have power and sovereignty over that water is who? The living God, God himself, right? And so often you see either God or the people of God throughout the Bible taking control over the waters, right? So think of Moses in the power of God, opening the sea. Think of Joshua through the power of God, opening the Jordan. Think of Elijah and Elisha through the power of God, opening, uh, again, the, the Jordan. These are, these are humans who in the power of God, through his sovereignty over the waters, are taking power over the watery chaos of creation. But here's the thing, only God 
walks on water. And so we hear in Isaiah, was it not you, God, who dried up the sea, who made a road in the depths of the sea? We hear in Job chapter nine, God alone stretches out the heavens and walks on the waves of the sea. We hear in Psalm 77, 19, your way, O Lord, is on the sea. Your path is on the great waters, yet your footprints are unseen. And so we hear again and again in scripture, God has power over the sea. God walks on the sea. God treads on the waters. You see, see, this isn't just some random miracle. God is, I mean, Jesus is communicating something about who he is. Are you starting to get the picture? And then as Jesus walks up to the boat, he says, he actually says four words in Greek. He says, ego eimi, ne prosthene. The first two words he says, ego eimi. I am. Don't fear. If you know your Bibles again, you'll recognize that name. One time Moses was at a burning bush and God revealed himself to him and he asked him, what's your name? And he said, I am. He said, what? I am. What does that mean? I am because I am. I exist because I exist. I have no causation. I have no power behind me. I am the source of all you have causation. You, your dog, your kids, the small, the trees, the world, everything has a causation behind it, but not so, says God. He is the source of all power. He is the source of all control in the world. You may have some measure of agency or control, but God has all of it. And so here is Jesus, y'all, walking on the sea, doing only what God can do, treading on the waters. And he walks up to the disciples and he says, I am claiming the very name of the sovereign God of Israel for himself. If you have any kind of struggling to understand who is this person as you're reading this book, this is the mic drop moment where you see this is no one less than the incarnate I am of the living God coming to us on the waters. And what does this God say? Don't fear. Oh my goodness, this is just so incredible. Here we are out on the sea, tossing the storm-tossed waves, don't know what to do. And the living God of Israel walks to us on the waters and he says to us, don't fear. The, the Christian psychologist Ed Welch says that what fear ultimately needs is not a pill or a plan, but a person. Fear looks to a person, right? So if you're a little kid and we've all had little kids or been little kids, when a little kid is scared at night, scared of the dark, what does the kid do? Does the kid get out a notepad and start calculating the, you know, the, I don't know, the logical probability that there's something under the bed? No. What does the kid do? Mom! Dad! The kid calls out for a person. And it can't just be any person. It can't just be a warm body. It has to be who? A person who has power, authority, dominion, a person who has, a person who is bigger than the fear. That's what fear looks to. Fear looks to a person, right? Here's a silly example. A few years ago in December, um, Kim and Parker Garrett, many of y'all know them, um, invited our family out um, on their boat with them in December. Now, I would not have thought December is a good time to go boating, but Parker thinks it is. <laughs> and even when I got out there, I didn't think it was a good time to go boating because it was very cold and it was very wet and it was super nasty. 
And much like the Jews, the Widmers are not seafaring people. And, um, and I was nervous and Sarah was nervous and the boat was rocking and it was really cold. And Sarah kind of said, are we going to be okay? I said, oh yeah, um, I'm sure we'll be fine. Now, did she believe me? Did that help her? No. Why? Because I know nothing about boats. I know nothing about water. I know nothing about the sea, right? She might as well have been asking me about nuclear physics. So what did she do? She turned and asked Parker, Parker, are we going to be okay? And he said the same thing I pointed out to her. He said, yeah, we're going to be, we're going to be fine. But here's the difference, right? The difference is, who? That Parker, the dude who was practically born and raised on a boat, Parker has dominion. Parker has authority, right? Parker has power over that particular fear that we were dealing with in that moment. So what is so beautiful about this story is that John is saying to us, he's presenting to us, what person is bigger than this? It's inviting us to do something different with our fears. You know, what we do when we face something that's scary is we either try to reduce the fear and make it smaller, or we try to puff ourselves up and make ourselves bigger. But here is an entirely different method of handling your fears. It is to look to the one who is bigger than your fears. It's to look clear-eyed at the true nature of the threat against you and yet to see the one who is bigger than the fear. Jesus doesn't even make the storm go away in this story. Did you notice that? He doesn't reduce the threat. He doesn't calm the storm. He doesn't minimize the threat. He maximizes himself. I am. Don't be afraid. And that's the Christian way of coping with fear. There is never a promise that God will remove all troubles and trials from you. Um, There's never a promise that God will immunize you from trouble. The promise is this, that Jesus is God incarnate for you and with you. And there is no darkness so deep. There is no wave so high. There is no ocean so wide where Jesus will not come and find you. He comes to you. And you you may say, look, um, you don't know what I'm going through. This sounds real good in a sermon but like you don't know what I'm dealing with right now and you don't know how alone I feel and you don't know how far off God is that God's just not coming. God's not coming. And you're right, I don't know how that feels. But this is what I know. That again and again, in this amazing gospel story that I believe is true, we are demonstrated that this person, this person Jesus, has power over everything that could harm us. He has power over demons that attack. He has power over illness and disease. He has power over all the brokenness raging against us. He has power even over the natural elements of the world. And in the very end of the story, he is thrown into the thing that is most against us. He is thrown into the watery chaos of death itself. He's thrown into that. And yet God raises him and breaks the back of death and so that even death cannot undo him. And so, yeah, you're right. This doesn't answer all the questions. This doesn't say why you're going through what you're going through or when God is going to come or how he's going to come, but it promises you that you cannot be separated from the love of God and the person that we are being offered in the gospel is the most powerful person of all, one greater than all the storms. And if you ground your life with him, there is not a force in the universe that can wipe you away, not a wind or a wave can bring you down in him and him alone. You are safe. And I can just tell you from experience is sometimes you have to listen to this, the truth of this gospel word more than you listen to your own feelings. 
Your feelings may be saying that you are abandoned and that you are alone and that God's not coming for you, but God's word right here says Jesus has come and Jesus is coming. And he says, I am with you. Don't be afraid. Can you claim that? That's the Christian way of handling fear. To look to the one who's bigger than it. So we've seen that we're, 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 we're out in the ship in the open waters. Life is very scary. But we've seen that we have one coming to us who is bigger than all fear. And then let's look at just the very end of the story about what the disciples do. It says, verse 21, they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. So first they're willing to take him into the boat. Now, that's kind of a big deal. I can't imagine, you know, how terrifying that must have been. Um, Actually, did you notice that it doesn't say the disciples were scared until they saw Jesus? I mean, I'm sure they were pretty scared about the darkness and the wind and the waves, but when they say, see Jesus, it says in verse 19, they're like really freaked out. They're terrified, as you probably would be if you saw a guy walking towards you on the waves. And this reflects what people do when they meet encounter God in the Bible, right? When people encounter the living holy God in the Bible, they get scared, they fall down, they're afraid, sometimes they die. Because when you see and meet God, in this case, God in the flesh, then you realize just how small and out of control you are and you realize how big and powerful and in control the living God is. And so the disciples at this moment, they have a choice, don't they? I mean, they can either say, "Uh uh-uh, not taking that guy in the boat and they can just keep on rowing, right? Keep on trying to maintain their own control over the situation and keep trying to get to the destination on their own. Or they could say, well, let's take this terrifying, all-powerful, amazingly holy person into our boat and trust him. Let's surrender, let's stop rowing, and let's take him in. And that's what they do. And so that's the first challenge here is your response to this is to release control Stop your rolling, stop trying to control the outcome and to take Jesus into the boat. Some of you feel out of control, uh, but you want to stay in control. We all feel vulnerable, right? There's so many things to be afraid of right now. Uh, Pandemics, mass shootings, your next scan, World War III, and now UFO balloons, right? Right? I mean, what humans, and what humans do in the face of fear is they grasp for more control, right? We, we turn to knowledge and technology and information and power and money and even harmful behaviors all to grasp for more control over our lives. But ironically, instead of helping us, it's kind of like um, the devil's snare in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Remember that, kids? That, those vines where you fall into them and as you, the more you wriggle, the tighter it gets. That's what happens the, the more you grasp for control over your life, the more ensnared you get, the more exacerbates the anxiety rather than calms it. And so Jesus comes to us and we're striving and we're flailing and we're rowing, desperately trying to control our lives and our kids and our future. And Jesus says, stop. Stop rowing. Stop straining. Let me in the boat. Let me take over. And that's what it means to fear him. That's what it means to fear God, to fear Jesus Christ, not to be afraid of him, but to surrender to him, seeing that he alone is God and has control. In the movie um, Jurassic Park, sorry, not Jurassic Park, Jurassic World, um, I think it's like the 
98th sequel or something. The, the, the park owner, Simon Morani, uh, takes his operations manager, Claire, up into a helicopter. And Claire has a very serious fear of heights and flying. And the helicopter, they're kind of touring the park, and the helicopter starts jolting around, and Claire like grabs onto the walls of the, of the helicopter to kind of hold on tight. And um, Simon chuckles and looks over at her, and he says, Claire, um, look, the key to a happy life is to accept that you never actually have control, which is actually pretty profound wisdom coming from Hollywood. Um, and I think it's really funny because Claire could not have gripped the helicopter hard enough to make it safer. And no matter how hard, no matter how tight you grip the walls, and some of you maybe should learn this when your spouse is driving, right? No matter how tight you grip the walls, none of it makes a difference in how the helicopter flies. The only thing that matters is the competence of the pilot. So think about your life, frantically bracing yourself, right? Unable to accept your lack of control, gripping your circumstances tighter and tighter, And the Lord of the sea comes to you and says, let me in. And ironically, peace comes not by grasping more and more control over your life, but by relinquishing it to the one with all power to see him, to fear him, to know him, to let him in your boat and ultimately to surrender to this one. And here's the interesting thing that happens. What happens when the disciples take him into the boat? I mean, they're like out in the middle of the sea and it says immediately they reach the shore where they were heading. And I don't really know how to explain that. Actually, I read a bunch of commentaries and nobody has an explanation for it. Is it some sort of teleportation or disapparition um, miracle? Nobody knows. I just think there's a beautiful lesson here that just listen, they invited Jesus to be with them and then there they were, right? With him, they were immediately where they needed to go. And it's almost like John is saying, Jesus himself is where you need to be. That he is where we most need to go. If he is with us, that in and through him, we are with the Trinity and in a world so full of uncertainty, when we're out on the open waters, it is very easy to think that what I most need right now is safety. What I need is more health. What I need is more money. What I need is less turmoil. What I need is the waves to stop crashing. What I need is for the wave to die down. But what they actually needed was to be with the Lord of the sea. They needed him, with him. They were right where they needed to be. They were safe in the storm. It's, it's actually very possible, you know, to be in a highly dangerous situation and to be absolutely safe. Uh, you, can, you can be in a place where there are many tornadoes and you could live in a trailer or you could live in a fortified, live in a fortified wind fortress. And in both situations, the environment is exactly the same, but only in one place are you safe. And what God is offering you in the person of Jesus is this. Until we get to the new creation, The world is always going to be a very dangerous and unpredictable place to live. And there's just no preventing that, right? But there's one way to be safe, and that is to be with the one, the Lord of the sea, who has defeated even death itself. He himself is what we're after, life in him. That's the only place we're safe. So let me me conclude. Uh, We hear from this wonderful little story that we are in the boat, We're out on the storm-tossed waters. We live in an unpredictable world and we're not in control. But the living Lord of the sea who has defeated even death itself comes to us and says, I am, don't fear. And I just wanna say this to you, church family. The picture of the church here 
is a community in the open waters that has no fear because the Lord of the sea is with us. What, and this is the question I just wanna leave you with for you to ponder. What if the church, what if our church, what if the church was known as a community that is not afraid? We live in a fear-drenched world and a fear-drenched time. We live in what poet W.H. Auden called the age of anxiety. Um, every, have you noticed everybody is really, really anxious and really, really afraid? Uh, and fear has become the most powerful political weapon as leaders on the right and the left use and wield fear to animate and unify their bases about speaking of the coming apocalypse, whatever they interpret that to be, to come. And unfortunately, the American church has often succumbed to this culture of fear. So when I look around in the American church landscape today, I see churches that are full of scared Christians who hoard their money and who terrify our children and who withdraw from communities and institutions and who seek to accumulate power to ward off threats and to give untold energy to securing our own futures. And the irony is, is that instead of bearing witness to the living Lord of the sea, we are essentially in our fear proclaiming God's absence. It's like we're saying, yes, world, we agree. God is missing from the world. And so it's up to us to protect ourselves and make things right. But friends, fear is never insight. Fear is always blindness. Because God's word tells us that even if nations rise and kingdoms fall and the mountains melt, we will not fail. We will not fear because God is with us. So yes, we're in the open waters and yes, the waters are rough and that's exactly how God said it would be. But we have the Lord in this, of the sea in the boat with us. So let's renounce fear as the godless spectacle that it is. And let's stop indulging it and let's believe that Jesus is stronger than our fears. And then we can be the kind of community that loves bravely and gives generously and opens our doors widely and speaks of hope boldly. Jesus comes to us, to all of us, and he says, I am, don't be afraid. Will we believe him? Will we trust him? Let's pray. I just want you to think of maybe one thing in your life right now that is causing you fear and anxiety and just imagine yourself as in a little boat out in some churning water, the open sea. And then you see Jesus coming for you. And he looks you in the eyes and he says, I am with you. Don't be afraid. Thank you, Father, that you have given us a better promise than to shield us from harm. You have given us the promise of your presence, that in through the person of Jesus who comes for us and through the spirit who he gives us, we have the very living presence of the almighty God with us in our boat. So help us to be those who do not fear. And in a fear-drenched world, help us to stand out as a community of bravery, courage, and love who do not run from what scares us, but who embrace it because Jesus is with us. We pray this in Jesus' name.